0: There is a war on Christian counseling, Christian therapy. You'll hear about it today. Thanks for joining us, friends on the line of fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. Phone lines are open. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. If you are among the many internet critics that like to post comments disagreeing with just about everything that I say or don't say, give me a call. Love to talk with you. 866-34-TRUTH. If you have a question of any kind that you'd like to ask, I'll get to some generic calls as well. Then at the bottom of the hour, a very important interview with Christopher Doyle. His new book, I actually wrote the foreword to it, The War on Psychotherapy, When Sexual Politics, Gender Ideology, and Mental Health Collide. It's going to be an eye-opener. It's really going to be an eye-opener. So I encourage you to let your friends know about that. That will start at the bottom of the hour. All right. So, so much going on in the world, all around us, Uh, elections in Europe. What's going to happen with the European Union? Which direction is Italy going? Which direction is England going? Which direction is Austria going In, in Israel? Will Prime Minister Netanyahu be able to form a coalition, form a new government or not? In India, very, very strong national victory for the militant Hindu anti-Christian BJP, the BJ Party, and therefore a strong mandate for the anti-Christian Prime Minister Modi. At the same time, Andhra Pradesh, the state that I go to every year since 1993, where my dear friend Yesupatam is based, they've had an overwhelmingly strong Christian vote there. Overwhelmingly for their state Congress and for their state leader. Strong Christian man. So that, that's quite remarkable. These are things happening in the world around us. There's, there's never a dull moment in U.S. politics in which way things will go. But as many different subjects as we could talk about today, I want to focus on a subject that ties in with the interview we'll be doing that ties in with the challenges we have living at our faith here in America. I want to make this perfectly clear. I'm not a victim. I don't feel sorry for myself. I don't feel sorry for other believers in America. I, I don't feel sorry for other believers, even in other parts of the world who are suffering, knowing, knowing that ultimately, Those who suffer the most for the gospel in this world will be most richly rewarded in the world to come, knowing that ultimately the ones to be pitied are not the ones being persecuted for the faith, but the ones doing the persecuting. Now, look, there's real hardship being experienced, horrific suffering. Yesupadam, my friend, was just in Sri Lanka meeting with leaders, pastors who were involved, who's whose church buildings were, were bombed, meeting with families, going to the hospitals, seeing the wounded. There are about 50 orphans now that, as a result of the bombings, 50 kids without parents, without homes. And, and churches now working together, ministries working together to, to support them to meet their needs. I don't want to minimize the suffering that's going on around the world, but let's use that and say, we're, we're not suffering here in America comparatively. All right. When I sound the alarm, when I raise my voice, it's not because I feel bad for myself and it's a pity party and poor us. No, if, if, if I am going to feel bad brother believers, it'll be in a country like Sri Lanka where people are blown up alive and severely injured and will suffer life injuries and, and kids without parents. And yeah, if I'm going to feel bad for them, I will. Even there, though, I know God's grace will help and, and there'll be great reward in the world to come and, and great grace poured out here and now. But certainly in America, I, I am not walking around, my head down, discouraged. No, no. I live in the victory of Jesus every day. I live in the celebration of the resurrection every day. I live with the reality that Jesus is Lord and that one day he will establish his kingdom here on the earth. I live with that reality all the time. I feel bad for the mockers. I feel bad for the militant atheists. I feel bad for those on the radical left. I feel bad for those who oppose the faith. I, I do. I feel bad for them. When I sound the alarm, when I give a warning, it's not poor us. It's simply wake up. It's simply to say, this is what's going on. This is reality. 866 truth is The number to call. Now, I've said for years, going back to 2004, so 15 years now, some of you listening are barely 15 years old, and I'm glad to have you listening. Some of you are 20 years old, so when you were five, I was saying this. Some of you are 30, when you were 15, I was saying this. Those who came out of the closet, I'm talking about radical, militant, pro homosexual activists, those who came out of the closet, want to put us in the closet. I began saying that in 2004. I've been mocked for it, ridiculed for it, until a few years back when the tide turned, people on the left began to say, bigots like you belong in the closet. Now, now please hear me. What I'm talking about is the silencing of opposing views. What I'm talking about is if you differ with gay activism, if you hold to a biblical stance on marriage and family, if you believe that people can change and be set free from same sex attraction or from gender identity confusion, if you hold to these things, there is a concerted effort to silence our viewpoints, to marginalize us, to put us in a closet, to intimidate us with fear or with shame or whatever. We're watching in front of our eyes. Look, friends, In California, it was very, very narrow. It came down to the wire where the sponsor of the bill, AB 2943, I believe that's the right number, withdrew it for now. But this is a bill that in the state of California would have made it illegal for anyone of any age. We're not just talking minors. Minors have already been discriminated against, and we'll pick that up with with Christopher Doyle at the bottom of the hour. But. It would have been illegal for anyone of any age, hear me, anyone of any age to receive counseling to help them with unwanted same-sex attraction or with gender identity confusion. Illegal. And the bill would have passed and probably would have been signed into law by Governor Jerry Brown. But the author of the bill, himself, gay activist, withdrew it. Now, did he withdraw it because of the pressure from Christian voices, because of testimonies that were coming forward of people who had been changed? Was it just strategic to wait for a different time? That's debatable. It's a victory that it was withdrawn. But already in California, it is the law. It is illegal in California. Illegal in California right now. And what? A dozen other states for a minor with unwanted same-sex attraction to get professional help. Now, here, here's what it means. It means that let's say you're, you've got a lesbian couple and they're raising a seven-year-old boy. And this boy says, I really feel like I'm a girl. I feel like I'm really a girl. Well, you can now go for that child and that child can get counseling. And now the parents will be encouraged. The lesbian moms will be encouraged. Send him to school. Instead of as Sam, send him as Sally. Send him in a dress if he wants to wear a dress and I use the ladies bathroom, the girls bathroom in school when he gets what a little bit older, 10, 11, whatever the age is, then put him on hormone blockers to stop the onset of puberty. And then when he gets to be, you know, 15, 16, start to get ready to transition with 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 mastectomy and and sex change operations, maybe 17, 18, as radical and extreme as that is. And as much as many medical professionals say that is child abuse. No, no, no. No problem. No problem. Perfectly legal. Now let's turn it around. Okay. You're a heterosexual couple. You're raising your seven-year-old son. He says, I, I, don't, I really believe I'm a girl. Mommy, dad, I know. I, I'm a girl. I feel like I'm a girl. And I heard in our school, they're talking about that. Maybe I really am a girl in a boy's body. I said, look, God made you a boy. And and look at your biology, and and look at the way he made you. And boys are different than girls. And and tell you what, let's go to to a Christian counselor, and they're going to talk to you, and they'll talk to all of us together. They'll talk to just you. Let's try to find out why you feel this way. I mean, look, would you agree that you have a boy's body? Yeah. Well, wouldn't it be good to be at home in that body? So you're not to have drugs and surgery, and yeah, that'd be good. Okay. Well, let's go. And, and, and let's get counts. No, that's illegal. That's illegal. So it's, it's not illegal to point in the way of, of radical transgender activism, but it is illegal to, to help someone be at home in their own body if you're a minor. Okay? The same with unwanted same-sex attraction. Maybe you're a 14-year-old girl. Maybe you were, you were raped several times by an uncle when, when you were 11. As you're getting now into your – you come into puberty and things, you just have this – animosity towards men and, and you feel like all men are rapists and evil and I don't want them, I don't want anything to do with men and you start to find more solidarity and with women and you know, maybe, Hey, look, maybe I'm a lesbian or something. You can go for counseling to affirm that lesbian identity. No problem. But if you wanted to go for counseling and say, you know, I, I something feels wrong. Something feels messed up since I got raped. And I, I mean, I, I'd like to marry a man. I'd like to have kids and have a family, but I just right now I don't, I have a desire that goes beyond in my head. Can I get counseling? Illegal in California. Even if you want it, the parents want it. Even if you've been sexually abused. And illegal in other states as well. Look, this is just the tip of a giant iceberg. The tiny tip of a giant iceberg. I am not saying poor us. I'm not saying poor me. And right now, no one is beheading us for our faith. No one is literally putting a gun to our head for our faith. But we need to wake up to reality, friends. This is the world in which we live. And by the way, it's, it's even worse in Canada already. Oh, and speaking of Canada, do you know that the movie Unplanned is banned from Canada? Or oh, you can do a private showing. You know, you could rent a place and do a showing, but in terms of movie theaters and things like that, nobody will, nobody will show it. Yeah, that, that's a little different subject, but that's, that's how bad things are in Canada right now. And we've known this for a long, long time. I remember years back, Focus on the Family, with James Dobson leading it. They, they could not air certain shows in Canada. If, if they were dealing with a subject like this, they couldn't air it in Canada. So we'll be right back. I want to go to your calls. And then after that, we're going to speak with Christopher Doyle and his book, The War on Psychotherapy. Don't go anywhere.
1: It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Yes, as I'm talking about these very issues, those who came out of the closet want to put us in the closet. Here's a headline sent to me. Virginia teacher fired for not using students' preferred pronoun. This is someone who, because of Christian faith, I could not in good conscience based on my Christian faith call a girl a boy. And got fired. 866-34-TRUTH. Before we go to the phones, and we're just opening the phones for any random question. It's not random to you, but random on our end. Uh, Any random question before I speak with Chris Doyle at the bottom of the hour. Before we go to the phones, special announcement. We have a birthday boy in the studio today. That's right. Kai, our expert media man, audio, video. Yeah, a dear friend of Caleb that was taken from us. So suddenly last Christmas, Kai is with us just about full time now, and it is his birthday. So Kai, just put up on the screen your age here so we can, we can celebrate that. Let's, let's see 20. Oh man, 21 years old. I feel like 21, 64. I feel like 21. So congratulations, Kai, you're a tremendous blessing here. Great servant heart and helping us take the vision forward in so many ways. We're blessed to have you here, buddy. And just wanted to say that I would I would sing. Uh, I, I would I would sing to you, but that would spoil the whole birthday party if I sang. OK, eight, six, six, three. Yeah, do it off the air. OK, uh, here we go. Eight, six, six, three, four truth. We go to Ricky in Connecticut. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi,
2: Dr. Brown. How are you doing today?
0: Very well. Thank you, sir.
2: Uh, so um, yeah, man, uh, I wanna I wanna say thank you so much for your work. I uh, don't, mean to, don't mean to keep you long. I want to run some quick questions by you. Yes. So, um, I'm I'm very interested in the divinity of Jesus and the messiahship of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, as I as I study it, it, seems in the Old Testament he's presented as this priestly king. You know, is a more so as a political figure. When he comes in, and the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the followers, they say, this isn't the Messiah that we, you know, were told was coming. You know, some people also say that for the 18 or 14 years of Jesus' life, that's not documented, that he went to Tibet, and that he he brought in these, you know, these Hinduist, uh, Buddhist philosophies that he also interrogated. So there's that distinction. Then there's this other concept of, why is it that when Jesus comes to the two first-century Palestine, they're expecting a certain type of Messiah, uh, a political figure, one that brings peace? But he he makes it clear that that's not him. That's not what he came to do. And I'll stop there.
0: Yeah. So great questions, Ricky. Let me let me uh, answer them in a little different order than you presented them. As far as the so-called hidden years, or from ages of twelve to thirty, which are unaccounted for in the Gospels. There is not a stitch of historical evidence, zero, that Jesus went to Tibet, that Jesus went to India, that that Jesus went anywhere else. Some Talmudic traditions, if they are speaking about this same Jesus, claim that he, he went to Egypt and that he learned sorcery there and, and, and things like that. It's all 100% myth. There is no evidence. There, there's not a stitch of historical evidence nor is there anything in his teachings or in, or in his ministry that backs that at all. There's a complete absence of, of any Hindu teachings or, mm-hmm. or teachings of sorcery or idolatry in any of his message whatsoever. So that, that's simply myth mm-hmm. by, by critics of Jesus or by those who want to make him into someone that he isn't. That's the first thing. The second thing is there were different messianic expe- expectations in the first century. I, I shot a note mm-hmm. to Ben Shapiro. He did a great interview with William Lane Craig, But I differed with Ben when he said there's always been one view of the Messiah in Judaism, and that's a political view. No, it it gets codified like that ultimately and and becomes especially clear by the time you get to Maimonides in in the 12th century when he lays these things out. But you did have different messianic expectations in the first century. You had in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Mishichei Aharon v'Yisrael, the Messiahs, plural, of Aaron and Israel. So one priestly, one royal. You had a prophetic figure that was associated with the Messiah as well. The teacher of righteousness in the Dead Sea Scrolls played a role as a messianic Mm -hmm. type figure. Uh, So you may have had a predominant view of a political Messiah, or you could say a royal Messiah. And that is absolutely part of of Jesus' mission. And and there's no question that when he returns, he fulfills those passages like Isaiah 11, etc., and establishes his kingdom on the earth. We look forward to that. What many Jews are expecting the Messiah to do when he's revealed is what we expect the Messiah to do when he returns. That being said, God in his wisdom hid certain things in his word so that there would not be an attempt to manufacture a Messiah or to make false claims about a Messiah. And, and let's also remember that the prophets were regularly persecuted by the people of Israel, that there are Jewish traditions that say all the prophets were persecuted, that Moses receives the law on Mount Sinai, and days later the Israelites are worshiping a golden calf. In other words, we have a history in Israel of rebellion, of rejecting the law, rejecting the prophets. Mm -hmm. It should be no surprise that, that as a nation we rejected the Messiah when he came. But that being said, God in his wisdom did things in such a way that once it happened, our eyes could now be opened, And there it is clear as day. In other words, it's not like we have to manufacture a suffering Messiah from the old Testament. It's not like we have to manufacture vicarious substitutionary atonement from the old Testament. It's not like we have to manufacture death and resurrection of the Messiah in the old Testament. It's there. It just wasn't clearly seen in advance. Now, there are some scholars who do believe both Jewish and Christian, that there were clear traditions of a suffering and even dying Messiah or even dying and resurrected Messiah before Jesus came. But that's hard to support. Some scholars argue, mm-hmm. for, to the, argue for it to this day. If so, it would have certainly been a minority view. So the things are there, but in the wisdom of God, somewhat hidden until Jesus does die, rise from the dead. And now, Now that it's happened and we didn't try to manufacture or make it happen. Now we can see it clearly. By the way, Ricky, I don't know if you've ever seen this illustration of, uh, you look at a picture. What are you looking at? It's the face of an old man. Keep looking. It's the face of an old man. Keep looking. (gasps) It's, it's a beautiful young woman. And and now you can't see the old man, but it's the same same picture. The same thing with reading the Hebrew Bible and you don't, I don't see any suffering Messiah. I don't see anything. And then (gasps) there, how did I miss it? It's so clear. It's laid out like this. Hey, Ricky, maybe we can continue this discussion and flesh it out a little bit more on one of our Thoroughly Jewish Thursdays. But thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Josh in California. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
3: How are you doing, Dr. Brown? I really appreciate your ministry. Thank you, sir. I have a quick question uh, regarding uh, Ephesians 4 when it's dealing with the offices. Yeah, Um, A lot of times, you know, you hear the Apostles of Christ versus the Apostles of the Church or the the different things, but if you get technical, aren't all the offices instituted by Christ? And wouldn't there be a distinction uh, of the Apostles that were in the Old Covenant? They were hand-selected, but that was, uh, you know, kind of like in the Old Covenant, but then after the Ascension, then Christ instituted gifts to the Church.
0: Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. I'd agree partially, but, but not fully. Uh, number one, I don't look at the apostles being set aside under the old covenant because the new covenant, it, it says, for example, in Luke's the 16th chapter that the law and prophets were preached until John. Since then, the good news is preached and everyone is pressing into it. So the, the new covenant is inaugurated with the ministry of Jesus and is then sealed with his, with his death. So Mark 3.14 tells us that he, he took some and appointed them as apostles. And Luke 6.12 tells us how Jesus prays all night. And then in the morning, he designates 12 as apostles. So, so the 12, they stand out alone. And then the one who replaces Judas, they stand out alone and unique. However, for sure... Yes, there are people with apostolic ministry that have been called and appointed since then and people with prophetic ministry and evangelistic ministry and as pastors and teachers all appointed by the Lord or given by the Lord to, to the church uh, to serve. Yes, yeah, so in that sense, I agree with you. So there were the initial 12 uniquely appointed by him with apostolic authority that no one has had since then. But there are others who are called to apostolic ministry, yes, that are called by God and appointed by God, just like hopefully a pastor who's pastoring was called by God and appointed by God. There, there may be a deeper nuance to your question, but I want to try to get to a few more calls in the short time we have. Thank you, sir. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH, Jared in Austin, Texas. Thanks for calling the line of fire.
3: Hello, Dr. Brown. Um, I have a, let's uh, uh, see if you can explain this verse. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 23, yeah, uh, where it says, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come to Egypt, and the Egyptians to Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians.
0: Yeah, so what's going to happen in the fullness of the Messianic age when Jesus the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom on the earth that there will be what the Bible speaks of in Romans eleven twenty five, 25, the fullness of the Gentiles in Romans eleven twenty six. 26. So 25, the fullness of the Gentiles, 26, all Israel being saved. So there'll be great harvest of the nations. And some of these nations, Muslim nations, will have a massive turning to the Lord. And the nation of Israel as a nation will turn to the Lord. And here, Egypt, Assyria, and Israel, in the past Arch enemies at war with one another, but both oppressive to Israel will now worship the Lord together that, that there will be as in the millennial kingdom, this extraordinary thing that happens that the nation of Egypt, there'll be national turning and Assyria national turning. So those that survive of the nations that attack Jerusalem will enter the millennial kingdom. This will be part of it with the uh, amazing situation where Israel will be the third among these as they all worship the God of Israel. It, it will literally happen. Literally. Thank you.
1: It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Friends, it's an all-out war. It's an all-out ideological, cultural war. It's a war that ultimately affects you and me, affects our families, our kids, our grandkids, affects our liberties. This is Michael Brown. I'm speaking now with Christopher Doyle. Christopher is a licensed psychotherapist. He's the executive director of the Institute for Healthy Families. He's been on the show a number of times. He is a voice for the voiceless, he himself came out of homosexual practice, is happily married with a bunch of kids. and He's written an important new book, The War on Psychotherapy. What happens when a sexual culture war is fought on the mental health battlefield? Uh, I get constant requests to write endorsements, to write forwards. And obviously, like anyone else, I have to be very selective because of time. But I believe in Chris. I believe in what he's doing. And this is an important book, The War on Psychotherapy. And if you don't know the relevance of this, you are about to. Chris, thanks for joining us again on the Line of Fire.
3: Dr. Brown, it's a pleasure to be with you. And thank you again for your amazing forward that you wrote for this new important book. As you said, it's The War on Psychotherapy, When Sexual Politics, Gender Ideology, and Mental Health Collide. And it's a war, like you said in the forward, that we can win but Christians and people of faith need to understand exactly the extent as to what is going on. And it's bad right now.
0: Yeah. And, and friends, Chris knows the things of which he speaks. He, he reads carefully. He knows what's happening in the culture. He lives in the midst of it. This is not one of these exaggerated internet sensations. We're talking about accurate facts, information. So Chris, why do you refer to this as a war?
3: Because in a war, we know that the war is an effective war is fought on many, many, many fronts. When we look at um, look at famous wars in the past, right? There were many ways that the that the enemy fights us um, on different areas, different locations, different geographic venues, different types of uh, strategic ways. And this war is no different. It's it's you know it officially started to ban therapy back in 2012. But we can see that this war has been has been fought now at least for 50 years. Uh, And I date this back to the 1969 uh, Stonewall riots uh, starting, uh, which is, you know, 50 years from now, as we uh, get ready to enter June, which is, you know, for for those who don't know, June is Gay Pride Month. Uh, Fifty years ago, the famous Stonewall riots happened. And and after that uh, time, Uh, There there began to be an all-out assault on the mental health field, which is where one of the first battlefronts that the LGBT activists were able to basically remove homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And from that time, back in 1973, it went on to progressively go into areas such as public education, which I have a a chapter dedicated in the book on public education, um, and now I I say the final frontier is religion, and we can see that uh, that there's a slowly uh, a steady and slow um, for to basically remove the Bible's prohibitions and the Bible's values on sexuality, specifically when it relates to homosexuality and gender identity issues, um, as saying that this is, um, is simply a relic of the past that the Bible. The scriptures are, are out of date. They they're, they don't apply to today's consensual, monogamous, uh, homosexual relationships, and that uh, this is simply something of the past. And I talk about it in, in these three main areas, mental health and medicine, religion, and uh, and also uh, education, where the three battlefronts that the gay activists have uh, simply tried to chip away, chip away, chip away, and also the legal system, one uh, that I, I didn't mention there. But we can see that uh, mental health and the legal system and education, the gay activists have successfully infiltrated those fields. Um, And now, if you have any opinion other than the so-called mainstream, you are not only being shut out, but now it's illegal. In 16 states and over 45 cities in several countries, I talk about in the book how psychotherapy for clients who don't want to have these conflicts, that don't want to live, a gay or, or trans lifestyle. Our psychotherapy is illegal now in these areas. And I talk about it strategically how they have done it and giving example after example strategically how these activists have done this. It's no it's it's no accident that it's been done. It's a, it's it's a strategy and a campaign backed by tens of millions of dollars by the largest gay rights activists in the United States and abroad and it's happening and probably in your neighborhood.
0: Yeah. And, and and Chris, when you mention the early strategy of gay activists, obviously in their mind, they're fighting for, for freedom, for justice, for equality. They've been mistreated. And the way they're looking at it, they've got two great enemies. So the late 1960s, they've got two great enemies. One is the psychiatric and psychological profession that says that homosexuality is a sickness. And the other is the world of religion that says homosexuality is a sin. That's why probably to this day, if you go to a gay church, you'll, you'll find tracts or, you know, little pamphlets saying not a sickness, not a sin. So the first target was to change the thinking of American Psychiatric Association, American Psychological Association. 1973, you have the first major shift there. And then that just goes like dominoes, one group after another, after another agrees. And then the, the battle ever since then has been in the church and it, it's never been a matter of tolerance. It's been a matter of changing views to now embrace and even celebrate homosexuality and to say that even even the possibility of change can, cannot be entertained. So. So, Chris, and that, I would that, also
3: add that it's not about it's not a it's not about facts either. In fact, in the introduction of the book, I, I quote Camille Paglia, who you probably know is a lesbian feminist from the University yep. of the yep. Arts in, in, in Philadelphia, And she says that we are now in a period of psychological stupidity where facts no longer matter. And this is what I realized, Dr. Brown, after lobbying heavily. And listen, my full-time work, as you know, is a psychotherapist, I'm in, you know, I have two practices. I'm also a a therapist at Patrick Henry College, which which is a conservative Christian school in Northern Virginia. Um, I'm very, very busy with clients (laughs) all week. But I, for several years, I actually dedicated, you know, almost an entire day each week to go and lobby federally and then many times on the state and local level and talk to politicians about this problem. And this was back in 2013, 2014, when this really this problem just began. And what I realized after talking with many, 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 unfortunately, conservative Republicans was that this was not a war about fact, that this is all about political correctness and all about feelings and ideology and culture. And that's why I say in the back of the book, it's a culture war being fought on a mental health battlefield. And unfortunately the facts no longer matter.
0: Yeah. And again, when we're talking about fighting on the mental health battlefield, that's not abstract. That's hurting people. That's people who are struggling, who are now being hurt more, who are being told, no, you, you, you cannot find a solution for your struggles and your pain unless you do it our way. So so, Chris, the the argument that's commonly used and you know that people have to manufacture information like in New Jersey to get things passed, create scenarios that are non-existent. But this right. is the argument that, quote, conversion therapy is like selling snake oil to a cancer patient, that it, it won't help them at all. You're giving them false hope, but you're probably worse. though, you are going to abuse them? like shock treatment or, you know, string them up by their, their toes and hang them to torture them, to get the gay out of them. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but this is kind of what's being presented. And we've got to stop this abuse of the LGBT community and, and stop the horror of conversion therapy. So let's, that that's, that's the, the current myth that is prevailing in 14 States and 45 cities, as you mentioned in your book, the war on psychotherapy, what's the reality? What are the facts?
3: Well, like any good sensationalized story, there's always an element of truth in any lie. And gay activists have been very, very successful in taking some horrible, horrible experiences of some mistreated LGBT identified youth that have been unfortunately hurt by their families and hurt by their communities and sometimes, and and I think you could agree, treated horribly. Um, not treated in a Christian way, Mm -hmm. uh, but really abused. And they've conflated this to say that this is licensed therapy. And I talk about a couple of these examples. One is Layla Acorn in Ohio. Another is Alex Cooper, who wrote a memoir called Saving Alex, where the families and communities did not get good licensed ethical therapy for their children. And the children, these two children, ended up having poor outcomes. In fact, Layla, Suicide because of the the fact that she felt like she had no hope. It was a boy that wanted, you know, that felt like that he was a girl, and and uh, that the parents didn't get, get help. But the problem that I that you have with here is that the LGBT activists then conflate these stories and say that this is licensed therapy, and then they invent a category of therapy that doesn't exist called conversion therapy, and this is what they they paint it as. That This conversion therapy, which isn't really therapy at all, no licensed ethical therapist calls their work conversion therapy, is torturing and abusing and mistreating and kicking LGBT youth out of of their homes. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth Dr. Brown. Every day, I wouldn't say every day, every week I get on average one to three new phone calls, new clients that are parents that are struggling with their sexually confused or gender identity confused or LGBT identified youth. And these are Christian parents or or religious parents that are sincerely concerned. And by the way, the fastest growing population of clients I have among youth is clients struggling with gender identity, transgender issues. These are parents that are sincerely seeking help for their children. And they call me in my office because they know that they're not going to get conversion therapy. They're not going to get a counselor that's going to simply shame or give a simplistic notion to stop feeling that way or doing something that's, you know, it's not really the problem, right? Um, what they're going to get is someone to work with their family and work with their child patiently to to help them understand potentially some of the family and the underlying causes as to why their child might be experiencing this in an ethical way. Now that's the right way of doing therapy. The wrong way of doing therapy, which is now the prevailing mainstream uh, way of doing therapy with, an LGBT identified, let's just take, for example, a transgender young person, okay? Across the country, we now see over 50 gender clinics have popped up across the country, and simply for the one protocol of having young people come in who have already identified as being transgender and starting them on hormone blockers and puberty suppression hormone pills as young as 10 or 11 years old, sometimes even younger, Simply for the protocol of starting to transition those young people into the wrong sex or the, or, or the wrong biological uh, to change gender reassignment surgery. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump she- in.
0: Uh, we're going to start right there. When we come back, friends, I think you understand why this is an important book, The War on Psychotherapy. Get it if you're a concerned parent. Get a copy for your pastor. Get it for your teen to read and understand. These are urgent matters. This book will help you
1: it's the line of fire with your host activist author international speaker and theologian dr michael brown your voice of moral cultural and spiritual revolution get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH here again is dr michael brown
0: i i want to be totally honest with you friends as as i always am you know we're on the front lines of addressing moral cultural spiritual issues every day of the week and i was so thrilled to see that chris doyle as a counselor himself as a man who's come out of homosexual practice himself and found liberty and freedom in jesus and liberty and freedom and sound godly counseling principles so glad that he took it on himself he's actively speaking actively addressing issues it's trust me it's a lot easier to just retreat to say hey i've got a good family I've got a good practice. We'll just kind of care for ourselves. But no, he's put the time in to write this important book, The War on Psychotherapy. It's quite comprehensive. It's very readable. It's very well documented. And Chris, I, I just want to commend you for not getting off the front lines because you know how wearying it can be. You get lied about every day. You get slandered. You it, it, you never have a moment of peace in that regard where where you're not in the, in the midst of some type of of ideological conflict, yet you've realized you've got to be a voice for the voiceless. If not you, then, then who else is going to do it?
3: I don't know how, Dr. Michael Brown, that we as Christians can stay silent when we see the injustice and the lies of the enemy um, affecting our children. Um, I think about my children. My wife and I are blessed to have uh, five children. We have three children uh, biologically and two from China. Um, mm-hmm. Our children are, are the ages of, of six to a, almost 11 years old. And when I think about the culture that they're growing up in today, it makes me shudder because there's so much uh, misinformation from the enemy. In fact, you know, we talk about these issues already to our nine and our 11 year old uh, oldest children about these issues of, of, of gay and transgender, and and I want to encourage all parents that that you know if you don't talk to your children about sexuality and, and about sexual orientation and identity and how sin uh, sin and emotional brokenness leads to these things, they're going to hear it at school. They're going to see it on the internet. They're going to hear it on TV. And you have to educate this generation um, on what the truth of these matters are and why people struggle with these issues. If you're if you're struggling with that, please go to our website. At instituteforhealthyfamilies.org, we've got programs and therapeutic help for families, parents, and those who are struggling with these issues. Um, there's lots of information that you can get on our website, instituteforhealthyfamilies.org. And, um, and and also thank you, Dr. Brown, for you being a voice out there that's not uh, backing down to the cultural and political intimidation uh, of the activists and of uh, the mainstream, uh, so-called mainstream.
0: Yeah, and, and look, Chris, it's because we saw this coming. We saw this this attempt to suppress and demonize all opposing views. We, we saw it coming that we, we had to to speak up. And by the way, to just echo what Chris has said, if, if you're a kid begins to to talk to, you know, mom, dad, I think I'm gay or I think I'm trans. Don't flip out over it. That just, Oh, what do you think? Let's talk. And then there are resources. Chris mentioned the the website. And then of course, so much in the book points in this direction. So so let's, let's talk about what's happening with kids who identify as transgender. Chris, how much scientific, re- scientific research has been done to understand the long-term effects of putting kids on hormone blockers and hormone treatments beginning at the ages of 10 or 11 or even younger, as you mentioned? How, how much scientific research has been done on something that's so radical?
3: Well, there's not enough scientific research done on it. And Dr. Uh, Michelle Cretella who wrote the preface of my book, uh, she is the American College of Pediatricians executive director, and she is what I would consider be, to be one of the foremost experts on gender uh, gender transition and gender ideology. She calls um, the pushing of children into these gender clinics that I just referenced in our before the break. Um, this is the protocol now from the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is the liberal so-called mainstream pediatric organization, and they re- recently revised their their uh, protocol for for those who experience gender uh, dysphoria, uh, which used to be called gender identity disorder, now it's called gender dysphoria, which is that uh, subjective feeling that I was born in the wrong body and therefore I am uh, something else. And she, she discusses this, the concept of these gender clinics across the United States with a single protocol of helping young people as early as 10 or 11 start to gender transition into the opposite gender and how dangerous this is, and we know, of course, from studies that uh, sometimes over 40% of post-operative persons that have gone through gender reassignment surgery have committed suicide. We know that for many of those, many of those who experience gender dysphoria, that simply removing their genitals and placing new genitals and, and a new identity doesn't doesn't help resolve the internal distress and trauma that those who experience gender dysphoria often have. And let me tell you this, and I say this with all respect and compassion, I've been working in this field of therapy for those who struggle with sexual and gender identity conflicts for 10 years now. And I can tell you without a doubt that the most suffering, traumatized persons that I work with are those who experience gender dysphoria. The families have a high level of psychopathology, there's a lot of emotional brokenness within the person and the home, and there are solutions therapy and healing can help these individuals. And as Dr. Cortella puts it, simply pushing these children into hormone-blocking suppression and a lifetime of permanent sterilization is akin to legalized and institutionalized child abuse. And we cannot allow this to happen. We must say something for the sake of our children not to allow this new ideology of gender uh, to, to define our uh, our lives. There is two sexes, male and female. It says clearly in Genesis and in Matthew that God created the male and female. Yes, there is emotional brokenness and there's sin in the world and we need to work that out. But there cannot be 50-some gender ideologies and 50-some gender identities to guide us. That's, that's hogwash. And we have to stand up for the truth and, of course, in a loving and compassionate way.
0: Yeah, and what when we look at things compassionately and we recognize the degree of confusion that's out there. And even, you know, you've got tampons in men's bathrooms at college campuses, because after all men can menstruate. And, and there's a, a, there's a teen Vogue video where the teenagers say, Hey, if I identify a certain way, then then my, that's what my biology is. So if I'm a biological male, I identify as female, then my biology is female. I, I mean, it's, it's now, perception becomes reality that you have. You well, have it's, not ignoring,
3: just, it's ignoring the facts and you, and you know that there are something like six or 7,000 differences in our DNA as male and female. That, yes. that simply our genitals are not the only marker of that. It's absurd.
0: Exactly. It's absolutely absurd. But what you're pointing to though, Chris, is let's say someone comes into a doctor and they're losing their hair. Let's say they're losing their hair because they have a certain disease in their body. And they're losing their hair. It, the oh, yeah. Okay, right, right. Sorry, bad illustration. Well, yikes, bad illustration. Okay, but, but sorry about not that. bad illustration
3: because uh, I use it in my book. I talk about this. Okay? Uh, okay. I talk about this in my book, and I use the example of the fact that I have alopecia universalis, right? And this is exactly the problem that we have, is that no one would look at my condition and say, well, you know, just because you don't have any hair, I mean, that means you're perfectly normal. There's nothing wrong. Um, right. Uh, yeah, know, but my, yeah, my point... Saying.
0: My point was going to be that if someone just said, OK, well, let's just get you a wig or let's just put hair on your head. No. no, Why is it that the person lost their hair? I mean, that's that's commonly what we do. We see a symptom we and, and then we right. trace it back. OK, so what's behind that? But not with this. When you've we got a question. Right. So when it comes to the gender identity issues, the logic would be, OK, let's try to find out why you a healthy biological male at the age of 11 really think that you're a girl. Let's try to find out what, as opposed to, okay, fine. Let's get you on hormone blockers. Let's get you set up for sex change surgery. I mean, look, we wouldn't, we wouldn't chop off the arm of someone with, with body identity integrity disorder because they feel like they've, you know, their arm doesn't belong. That's a radical thing. But here we do these, these things even more radical with our own children. So friends, again, the book, the war on psychotherapy by Christopher Doyle we've got two and a half minutes Chris can we win can we see the tide turn in America or is it too late
3: well this is this is exactly what you're talking about with what you just said dr. Brown is we have entered a period of psychological stupidity where a uh, where one plus two no longer equals three okay one plus two equals whatever you want it and however you feel and it's absurd. It's absurd. We have to start understanding what's fact and what's feeling. The feeling side of us has to be compassionate and loving and sensitive to those who are sincerely struggling with this. The fact side of us has to say, yes, and this is the objective truth, and we need to stick to the objective truth. However compassionate we can get to that, I totally believe that we need to love people with where they're at, journey with them, and not be judgmental. But I believe it is a war that we can be won. It's not only a spiritual war, it's primarily a spiritual war, but God has written the law in our hearts, and the law is starting to turn in our favor. And I talk about this in the book, in the the chapter on the war in the courtroom. We see that last year, a very, very momentous Supreme Court decision uh, where pro-life pregnancy centers were being forced by the state of California to offer um, free information on free and low-cost abortions. Um, the state of California was trying to force these pro-life pregnancy centers to say this, uh, offer these abortion services against their against their conscience. And the Supreme Court came down on a 5-4 decision and said, no, uh, you cannot do this. this is a violation of free speech. And there's no such thing as California invented, the Ninth Circuit Court have invented called professional speech, speech of speech. Well, why is this important to these so-called conversion therapy bans we've been talking about? Well, all of the legal precedents, thus far in upholding these so-called conversion therapy bans in the ninth circuit and in the third circuit court of appeals have been upheld because of this very concept of professional speech
0: and right, now so, so,
3: we are seeming the tide is turning
0: because right the tide is the turning friends i'm out of time go to amazon.com order your copy of the war on psychotherapy by christopher doyle and then post a review to share it with us. Chris, thanks for joining us in Port Work and pray for Chris and his family. We appreciate it.